Would you open your Bible to Mark chapter 8? I'll add my voice to the matchless Puerto Rican tones of Isaias and say thank you to all of you who participated yesterday in the conference, especially those who served uh, so faithfully, uh, serving lunch, uh, music, all the ways that that you were involved in serving. It exceeded our expectations. We had great attendance there. Uh, we also captured it, so you don't just have to read the book. You can, you can be part of it virtually. So we'll put the videos up in the next few weeks, I'm sure, and you can look for that. I think you'll find it uh, beneficial, challenging, and insightful. So uh, thank you again for, for being a part of that. But we continue in our study of the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8, And this is not disconnected from where we've been before. It's important that I note that we've been working through this section rather slowly, being reminded of the enacted parable of Jesus as he heals a man who is mute and deaf and keeps insisting on the concept of of hearing and understanding. And as he healed a, a blind man so uh, beautifully at Bethsaida and, and reminds us of the connection between seeing and, and understanding and a clarified sight. Uh, all of these miracles were in and of themselves beautiful acts of the compassion of Jesus, but they also are pointing towards the paragraph that we're approaching in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Let me read it to you through verse 33, Mark 8, 27 through 33. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say, John the Baptist's. Others say, Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. May God bless his word among us. Mistaken identity is a theme in literature, repeated Shakespeare in two of his plays, one involving twins switched at birth, another one Uh, with a case of mistaken identity that drives the plot. Charles Dickens uh, uses a case of mistaken identity. Uh, It's a common theme in literature, but it happens in real life too. We're probably the most familiar with the cyber version of that. Sorry, I'm all teched out now after yesterday. Uh, The cyber version of that would be like identity theft, right? Somebody stole your credit card information or, or, or something, uh, there's less, you know, identity theft in the, you know, someone in a disguise as you as there was in, in previous times because we have DNA and fingerprints. And to clarify, we've always had DNA and fingerprints. We just have the technology now to, to kind of examine that stuff. But in, in history, there's been a lot of cases of mistaken identity that have caused great problems. Uh, the story of Nicole McCabe, uh, six month pregnant woman living in Tel Aviv, an Australian by nationality, a naturalized citizen in Israel. The Mossad, kind of the CIA of Israel, did an assassination of a top Hamas operative in Dubai, Mohammed al-Mabua. 
uh, was assassinated by, well, supposedly uh, assassinated by the Mossad, uh, and they used uh, this woman's passport. She, being six months pregnant and a lady in Tel Aviv in her apartment with her husband the whole time, uh, did not actually assassinate the uh, high-ranking official in uh, Hamas, but she was, uh, her passport was used, and uh, she had to get under some serious protective custody because, uh, you know, death squads and stuff. So it's a dangerous case of mistaken identity. Maybe not as dangerous, because she survived fine, as Adolf Beck. Uh, Adolf Beck, uh, this was in the, the 18th century, 17th century, uh, I don't know when it was, Adolf Beck, uh, in Peru, uh, he was there, uh, somebody by the two aliases, John Smith and Lord Wilton of Willoughby, which is, would be a great name for a Labrador. Uh, Lord Wilton of Willoughby, fetch my slippers. Uh, anyway, th- this, this criminal uh, committed all manner of crimes in, in England, and Adolf Beck looks just like this guy, both white dudes with mustaches and, you know, ascots. So obviously he was arrested, charged with 15 crimes, uh, sent to prison, a work prison for seven years. And three years after his release, he was arrested again. And as he was being sentenced to four more years of hard labor, they caught the real guy, uh, having already you know, put this guy through so much. He was awarded a 5,000 pounds Um, You know, that's probably worth it, right? Another example would be English Jim. Uh, This is kind of an Old West story. He he was doing, you know, hood rat stuff in the Old West, killing gold miners, robbing banks, murdered a sheriff, uh, who shot the sheriff, and he escaped from jail. Uh, He had a scar over his left eye. He was missing the tip of his forefinger. And so when they caught Thomas Burdu, uh, they thought this has got to be English Jim because he's got a scar over his left eye. He's missing the tip of his forefinger. They tried him. They convicted him. They sentenced him to be hung by the neck until dead. And then right before his execution, uh, there they found English Jim doing more crimes. And there, sure enough, he had the scar, the missing fingertip. They had the wrong guy. Uh, these kind of stories are, are all over the place, actually. And they're not just in, in olden days. It was a really tragic one in 2006 when students from Taylor University uh, got in a, a terrible accident. Many students, I think it was nine kids in the van, uh, several died on impact with a, a semi-truck. Uh, one of the young ladies was transported off to the hospital. They grabbed her identity, her purse, and, and put it in the, the transport with her. Uh, another family received their daughter, uh, had a funeral. It was an absolutely heartbreaking event until five weeks later, uh, they realized that these two women, young women, because of the bruising, because of the horrific accident, were actually switched identities. And the family that received back this girl, uh, who'd already had a funeral for their daughter, they thought, now switched places with this other family to grieve. Uh, They said, it's hard because our joy is their pain. These kind of cases of mistaken identity are not uh, completely unknown to us. And some are interesting, some are absolutely tragic, none are as significant as misunderstanding who Jesus is. That has been Mark's singular concern in unfolding his gospel from the very start. The identity of Jesus has been and continues to be his central theme throughout this gospel, starting in the very first words, Mark 1 One, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's from that arresting beginning that the recognition of Jesus is left to demons in chapter 1, verse 24, when they say, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Or again, in verse 34 of the same chapter, He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
Uh, In chapter 3, verse 11, the same thing. Uh, Demonic recognition taking place. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Or in chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus saw from a distance uh, that demoniac from Gennesarene, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. And so this recognition, first with the narrator in verse one of chapter one, and then with this host of Uh, demons throughout Jesus' ministry declaring his power over the realm of unclean spirits. And then we see the miracle work of Jesus provoking the crowds not to identify him, but to ask that same central question. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Or in chapter 2, verse 12, when it says he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all, this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Or further along in chapter 6, verse 2, when Uh, The prophet without honor moment comes and and the Sabbath is there and he's teaching in the synagogue and the people who heard him were amazed and they said, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 14 reminds us that one of Jesus' greatest enemies, King Herod, had confusion about who Jesus was, mistaking him for a resurrected John the Baptist, maybe out to get revenge for his murder. Or in chapter 7, uh, verse 37, where the crowd says the people were overwhelmed and amazed, and they say, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All of this wonder, all of these questions, all of this demonic interference, and even when his disciples are beginning to ask him more direct questions, and Jesus is teaching them and revealing himself to them part by part in chapter 4, verse 41, it says that when he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid after the storm? Who, do you still have no faith? And the disciples were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so the question of Jesus's identity is at the forefront of Mark's gospel. He wants us to be seeking the answer to that question. And the interplay between the demons wanting to identify him on their own terms and for their own agenda, Jesus silencing them, as well as Jesus uh, holding on to this messianic secret, not letting people he healed identify him because of his concerns about the timing, the nature of their understanding of his ministry, where he's headed, the plan of God that is unfolding before him providentially as he walks in obedience to his father. All of these things keep pressing that same question, who is Jesus? What is his identity? This is the question that is central to Mark's gospel, the question that every reader has to be asking. And as Jesus shows his authority and inaugurates his kingdom and demonstrates his power and shows his wisdom and his authority, the question is pressing on and on and over and over, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this Nazarene? Who is the one whose sisters are among us, whose father and mother we know? Who does he think he is? Why is he here? What is his objective? Who is this man? And as Jesus begins to enact these parables of understanding, and Mark arranges them so perfectly next to each other, first 
healing the ears of the man and the eyes of the other man, opening up these channels for them to see the world and hear the world that was formerly dark to them, but showing us this parable of, of an increased sight, spiritually speaking, an increased hearing, spiritual speaking, that, that there is something to be seen here. There's, there's uh, men like trees walking around. There's a clouded and blurry vision that can only be clarified by the touch of Jesus himself. An understanding of who Jesus is is on display as this gospel moves forward. And at this point in Mark, it's a bit of a, a hinge in the story because his identity will now conclusively be revealed. But what that identity entails, what it means, how we're to understand it, is something that will unfold in the coming chapters. And so here we have a pinnacle of divine revelation. We have the most clear answer to that most important question, who is Jesus? And it comes from the lips of Peter, but it comes in an unfolding way. And so let's look at it together in three parts. First, it's a question of human perception. A question of human perception. Mark chapter eight. Remember, we were starting in verse 27. Right after restoring the sight of the blind man, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Some have made much of this location, but this location is not much. It's not a significant place. It is a, a place we're still moving kind of around in the north. There's gonna be more Gentiles than not in these areas, and Caesarea Philippi has some history that may or may not be relevant to this. They worship some kind of goat god called Pan. Uh, there's a temple there. Perhaps that's significant to this moment of revelation, but this is the place where this confession happened, and that's what gives this place significance. Tour buses still go to Caesarea Philippi and say this is the place where Jesus asked this pressing question. The significance of Caesarea Philippi really is unfolding before us in this story. And Jesus begins, initiates this question, initiates this interaction by asking this important question at the end of verse 27. He asked them, the disciples, who do people say that I am? Jesus is asking them as this incredible rabbi. Normally, disciples ask rabbis questions. What's the meaning of life? Help me with math, whatever kind of rabbi you have. And you're asking the rabbi questions. Jesus is notorious for asking his disciples questions to draw out their understanding. And before his identity will be revealed, he wants to survey the crowd. He wants to take a poll. He wants to hear from them, what is it that, that they are saying about me? What's the popular opinion? As we've seen, the crowds have thronged around Jesus. These swelling crowds have sought him out for his miracle-working power. They've hung on his words because he teaches like no one else. They are attracted to Jesus. They're, they're finding him uh, magnetic to them. They, they, they mass in following him, and, and it's helping that he sometimes provides for them this miraculous feast he heals their diseases in large groups of people, sometimes through the entire night. And so lots of people are following Jesus. Lots of people are aware of Jesus. There was no need for this to go viral uh, on the internet. It just was viral by word of mouth. Everybody had heard about this teacher from Nazareth. Everybody had an opinion about him. And so Jesus begins to open his disciples' understanding further by asking them first, before he asks them this most important question, he asks them this 
preliminary question about the way he's perceived, about what popular opinion is, about what the polls would say. And he asks them, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who is Jesus? Well, the crowds are represented in their answers with a diversity of responses. Verse 28, the disciples reply, and you could picture it, some disciple saying one answer, another disciple giving another answer, and there seems to be three top answers that have come out that represent the various opinions about who Jesus is. Now, this isn't, an ex- this isn't a, a complete list. This isn't an exhaustive list because we know that the Pharisees, some of the teachers of Israel, have already accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. So that's not one of the ask- answers the disciples offer to Jesus. There's There's a variety of opinions. The disciples choose to give Jesus the most complimentary of all the opinions, not the ones that his enemies hold to. And so let's look at their three answers. The top, this is what would come up on on Family Feud if you you were uh, playing that game. First answer that comes up is some say that Jesus is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Well, we know a lot about John the Baptist because this gospel began with John, the cousin of the Lord, a prophet who was promised, uh, one who would make the way for Jesus, who would be his forerunner, who would announce his own unworthiness, and who would specifically say, I am not the Christ. And so John the Baptist had become a popular answer, so much so that Herod was concerned about being haunted by some resurrected form of John the Baptist after he cut off his head, and maybe that's who Jesus was, a popular answer that had made it all the way up to the Tetrarch. But there's another answer that they offer to Jesus after saying, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah Elijah. And that's an interesting answer. And if you've read the Gospels very much, I think you would be surprised if you just marked down all the Elijah stuff. I mean, we know Elijah from Sunday school class, book of Second Kings. He was a prophet, pretty impressive. Uh, the most famous thing is, you know, when he is taken up in a chariot at the Instead of dying, he goes up in, in a fiery chariot. It's kind of a, a unique way to close out your earthly ministry. It might be what J-Mac does. I don't know. <laughs> and so Elijah was, was famous among the Jews because it was, it was this unusual end that, that didn't have a, a period at the end of the sentence. It didn't have a final chapter. And so not only did people wonder what was to... You know, what was the future plan for Elijah? Would he be back someday? The prophets who came after him often referred to Elijah. The very final book of the Old Testament has some interesting Elijah stuff in it. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's an interesting little prophecy about someone's going to come. There'll be, verse uh, 2, a refiner's fire. It'll be a a purifying sort of thing. Uh, There's going to be both judgment and salvation. And we're not sure what's being talked about there, the people who heard Malachi's message. Some think he's talking about Malachi. Malachi's name means the messenger. And here is a messenger being promised, but as redemptive history unfolds, that seems to likely be a reference to Malachi in the sense of he is a foreshadowing of the one who's being directly referenced here, which is John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist came, people asked him, you know, are you Elijah? And he said he was not. 
But the Malachi prophecy continues to kind of give us some of this intrigue about the life of and ministry and, and ongoing potential return of this Elijah figure in chapter 4, verse 4. It says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances, which I commanded in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I should come and smite the land with a curse. Well, that's an interesting prophecy about a future coming of Elijah. And I know what you're thinking, well, did he come? You'll have to tune in and mark because he does show up here in this next chapter at the transfiguration. And so some people think that's, that's the prophecy, that brief chat with Jesus. Uh, other people think, well, no, it's when John the Baptist came. He set the people right. He was Elijah-like. Other people say that Revelation 11 is, is when the two prophets come in that end time scene. You've seen the movie. And one of the prophets, potentially Elijah, some people think. The reality of it, we, we don't know. All we do know is that there was this expectation that surrounded the mysterious end of Elijah's ministry. This great prophet of God disappeared off the scene. There was no gravestone. There was no you know, final words. Just vanished. And so the people of Israel wondered, is he back to set the hearts of the fathers to, to be this, this prophetic voice from God and, and especially to relieve us from our troubles? They're under the thumb of Rome. They want to be rescued politically. Uh, there's a, a military force that is hedging them in and surrounding them and oppressing them and watching their every move. It's a tricky time to be the nation of Israel, a tenuous existence. And so they wonder, is this one that's doing all these miracles and teaching, is he Elijah, the great prophet who disappeared and, and may come back sometime in the future? And then like a third category there, and still others, one of the prophets. And that sounds like, like a junk drawer thing, like, you know, you got those in your kitchen with all the stuff in them, one of the prophets. But it's actually a, a significant statement. The prophets are, are the big dogs. We're talking Ezekiel, we're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, the major prophets, that's what they would, when they talked about the prophets, they, they usually, when they said the prophets, were talking about one of the significant prophets of the Old Testament, one of these momentous voices from God that was to help the people see what God's perspective on their place was, to restore them from captivity or to bring judgment. There was something that came with these big prophets, and so when the disciples say, he, you're, they say you're John the Baptist, they say you're Elijah with that uncommon departure uh, and you know, a, a mysterious future return, or you're one of the prophets. It's like they're saying, maybe he's like Moses. There's nobody bigger than Moses for the Israelites as far as those who speak on behalf of God. And there's lots of, lots of talk about Moses and Jesus in the book of John. So these answers aren't negative answers. This isn't like what the, the, the leaders of Israel were saying when they told him he was in league with the devil. I mean, these are, these are pretty orthodox Jewish answers. These are, are complementary answers. And John the Baptist is someone who was of great significance, of the highest regard, one who really spoke to the people after centuries of silence and ministered God's word to them and, and led them to repentance and pointed them to their messianic hope of a Davidic kingdom being restored. This is a good answer, a, a positive answer. Uh, then they, they, when they said, Elijah, it's a, a very complimentary answer. This is the man who didn't die. This is the man who was a, a prophet of God among uh, a time of, of major spiritual apostasy uh, among God's people, uh, a man who could confront 
kings and rulers who are wicked. And to say that Jesus is one of the prophets is to put him next to Moses and Ezekiel and Elijah and Isaiah, some of the greatest men that God had ever sent to minister to his people. But those answers are insufficient. Because Jesus doesn't accept them. And because ultimately, that is not who Jesus is. Who do men say that I am is an interesting question and one that can receive so many different answers. Pull the crowd today. The world religions would answer that Jesus, according to the Muslims, is a great prophet of Allah, second only to Muhammad, that he didn't actually die, but was appeared to die on the cross and has been wrongly deified by Christians in the West. To our Mormon neighbors, Jesus is the result of a physical union between God and Mary. To Jehovah Witnesses, he's some sort of elevated Michael the Archangel, a glorified being. To kind of make your own Gnosticism, uh, pagan religions of today, uh, most people would probably just say, you know, Jesus is you know, someone who has spiritual knowledge or he, he could get us to a higher level of consciousness or, or he's just one of many wise teachers and, you know, the golden rule and stuff like that to your university professors. He was a, potentially a, a, a person of, uh, I mean, now university professors say Jesus was like a racist and stuff. So, I mean, there's lots of answers that come out. All these voices that, that come and say, this is who I think he is, this is who I think he is, and we would be hopeless if it were left to the consensus. If Jesus left us there with the disciples shouting out various answers about the human perception of who Christ is or who Jesus is, who is this man from Nazareth who did all these wonderful things before their eyes, if we were left there, we would be lost we would be confused. And this case of mistaken identity would be a disaster for us. And so it's an extraordinary mercy of Jesus that he presses his disciples with yet another question. And this one, he doesn't ask about the pollsters, the crowds, the powerful, the consensus. He asks about you. He asks about those who've been following him. He asks the ones who've heard him teach with unmatched authority. He asks the men who've been with him as he ripped demons out of the, the, the inside of a person and cast them into darkness. He asks the men who have watched him touch sick people and heal them of lifelong infirmities, who have seen this Jesus raise the dead, who have seen and heard the voice of Jesus calming a tumultuous storm, who've seen Jesus walk across water like it's dry ground, who've seen Jesus take one lunch and feed thousands. He asks them, having set it up with the popular answers. And what we receive in this answer is not human perception, but point two, divine revelation. Divine revelation. And it comes from an unlikely source. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? 
Peter answers. Peter often answers. Peter is often the spokesman for the disciples. He's listed first in the lists of disciples along with James and John. He is one of the inner circle of Jesus. Peter is one who will often speak apparently without thinking about the answer. Uh, Peter gets in trouble with Jesus more than any other disciple. He gets rebuked by Jesus quite directly and momentarily, but Peter is the one who speaks and likely he speaks on behalf of the disciples in their increasing understanding of who Jesus is. In this moment, this crescendo of this gospel, this high point, this apex, where he's gotten to the point where he is going to reveal to them who he is and what he has come to do, Peter is the spokesman who gives the right answer, a singular answer, unmixed by public opinion, disregarding the other options that lay before them. Peter answers simply, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. What an answer. Christos is the Greek word. It means anointed one. It's a Greek version of, of the Hebrew concept of anointing, which in the Old Testament is Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. It's just an adjective that means anointed. Uh, there's lots of anointing in the Old Testament. They pour oil on somebody's head when they're making him king or in a moment of prophetic recognition. The priests were anointed in the Old Testament all through the book of Leviticus. Prophets were anointed. Even a king was anointed, a Persian king, Isaiah 45, when Cyrus was anointed. Uh, anointing was recognizing. Anointing was uh, making something official. Anointing was a symbolic way of showing that this person is set apart. Uh, Israel's kings were called the Lord's anointed. David in 1 Samuel was Yahweh's anointed one. In other words, he was the one who served on behalf of and as the vice regent of God himself. The Old Testament never uses the term the Messiah the way we do. But it set up this concept that God had a Davidic king, an anointed one, a promised savior who will establish an eternal kingdom and bring about God's justice and righteousness. Passages like the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 spoke of that very clearly. Or you could look at Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 5 or Isaiah 11 verse 1 through 10, all passages that speak of the messiahship of God's anointed leader, someone who was to come someone who was promised. By the time of the close of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the anticipation for the Messiah had become extraordinarily high. The concept had developed to be the Messiah. But the understanding of who this was had become kind of twisted to what the cultural expectation was. And so in Peter's answer, we have the clear identity of Jesus because Christ isn't Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Christ means anointed one, chosen one, appointed one the specially selected one and promised one. With that title, Peter, Peter brings in all the, the baggage that's cultural, but all the theology that's biblical about God going to set everything right that began in the garden and that culminates in a city coming down on earth in heaven. Peter sees the identity of Jesus, the central theme and in answer to the question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And knowing that Jesus has already included these guys on the inside of what he's doing, chapter four, verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Peter simply says, you are the Messiah. How did he know that? Well, he'd seen all that we've seen so far in Mark's gospel and more. But that's not the right answer. When Matthew tells this story, the same scenes, Caesarea Philippi, he adds additional information. Remember, Mark probably got his stuff from Peter. And Peter had grown by the time of the composition of Mark's gospel and I'm sure was concerned about humility. And so for some reason, Peter or Mark, for his purposes, didn't include this little sentence. But I think it does answer the question, how did Peter know that Jesus was the Messiah? Because as soon as Peter says, you are the Messiah, Jesus tells him, Matthew 16, 7, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This is divine revelation. The human perception is one thing. The divine revelation is something entirely different. This isn't what people think he is. This is who God says he is. And this question is just as pertinent and just as pressing as when Jesus asked those disciples in this seminal moment, you can ask it now just the same, who do you say that Jesus is? And a subjective answer will not do. A popular answer will not do. An impression will not do. The only answer that will be acceptable is one that comes by way of divine revelation. For you to acknowledge, you, to acknowledge who Jesus is requires this same kind of divine prescience. For you to be able to say that Jesus is the Christ requires God to work in your heart, to open your eyes, to illuminate your understanding to spiritual things, to throw off all the idolatry that is in your heart innately as a sinner, and to bring you to a point of submission and illumination and realization and repentance and joy that says, I know who Jesus is because God showed me who he is. That God revealed Jesus to me and the way that God does that is through his spirit and through his word. God testifies to Jesus through the gospel, the gospel that's given to us in the gospels, that's elucidated in the New Testament that's shown that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the chosen one of God, the fulfillment of all that expectation that came for all the centuries of Israelite history. And for Peter to say you're the Messiah requires divine intervention. And for you to see Jesus as God truly has sent him, as he truly is, as God of very God, as the Savior of mankind, as the one who died on the cross for your sin, as the one who God vindicate when he resurrected him from the grave, for you to see Jesus that way requires the same kind of divine revelation. So if you wonder about who Jesus is, you can be sure that the condition described in Ephesians chapter two of, spiritually, of spiritual death, of, of a spiritual darkness is what's happening in your heart. But if you can say, along with Peter, Jesus is God's son, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the one who came from God and the one who will bring us to God, that is a gift from God. That's divine revelation. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is to say that God's promised agent of salvation has come, that the end time anointed Savior promised is here 
that the promised one from the line of David that would sit in his forever throne is here, that the one who established that eternal promise of righteousness and justice that the prophets long for is here. Who is Jesus? He's the anointed one, the chosen one of God. In the absolute sense, he is Christos, Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the savior that was promised. So human perception says various things about who Jesus is, some positive, some negative. Divine revelation says that Jesus is the chosen one, the anointed one of God. But there's something else happening in this passage and it's dangerous misconception. To know that you can acknowledge who Jesus is but still be greatly confused about what that means and that entails is similarly just as true today because Peter is exactly right. He nailed it and Peter is also wrong. He's right, Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what that entails. He brings way too much baggage to that thing, too much misunderstanding. And we do the same thing today all over the Christian world. There's lots of people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. And then when they tell you what that means, it is not what the Bible says it means to follow Christ. I follow Jesus. You know why? Because he fixes all my problems and he makes me rich. But you just said Jesus is the son of God. But all that other information that follows is way off. Yeah, I think Jesus is the son of God, but you know, I think he's, you know, I know he's a God of love and grace. And so, you know, I could do whatever I want. God will forgive me. I think you misunderstand the nature of the Messiah. You misunderstand what what Jesus means when he says he's the chosen one of God. It's all those self-defined discipleship or kind of subjective take on what Christianity means to me that we see even in Peter's answer here in the very presence of the Lord after this moment of divine revelation when he gets the answer exactly right, you are the Christ, Jesus warns them, it's not yet time to tell anyone this and the reason Jesus tells them it's not yet time is shown to us in these next verses because Peter thinks that if Jesus is the Messiah then he ought to watch, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, a significant title in the Old Testament to speak of Jesus' divinity and his relationship with God, we'll do that in a different sermon, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, all the leading religious leaders categorized, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So Jesus just helped them understand what it means that he's the Messiah. He told them what's entailed, not in human perception about Jesus, not just in this moment of identification, but in now Jesus' authority in explaining to them what circumstances must unfold for the Messiah to accomplish everything God sent him to accomplish. And it involves, verse 31, suffering many things. And as we get to that part of the, of the cross and the beatings and the spitting and the punches and all that comes as Jesus suffers first at the hands of men unjustly and then justly. He suffers the wrath of God. All the suffering is entailed by those words. 
his rejection. There isn't going to be a swell of popularity among these teachers who have already set their teeth against him to oppose him. The Pharisees are going to stay Pharisees. The elders stay elders. The chief priests, teachers of the law, will by and large stay against him and reject him. This will fulfill Psalm 118, the the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And so Jesus says there's suffering and there's rejection. And not only that, if this isn't plain enough, he must be killed and after three Three days rise again. Now, please don't take this from your seat because a few weeks before Easter, this makes a lot of sense to a bunch of Christians. But they had never heard anything like this before. They had because they'd read the Old Testament, but they missed it. They missed it because of the popular conception that the Messiah would free them from Rome, would, would gather up an army, would, would get rid of the Herods and get rid of the Caesars and, and be in charge and, and lift Israel up to this preeminent place in the world so that all the nations would, would surround her and, and worship her God. The prophets talked about that. And so they thought that the end game was going to come about by the relieving of their immediate problems and circumstances, politically, militarily, economically, all the right now, here and now stuff would be fixed when Messiah comes. And so Peter was just buying into what people thought Messiah would do. But Jesus says, suffer, rejected, killed, and rise again. And Peter says, absolutely not. Wow. Preachers like to make fun of Peter and say, yeah, Peter, nah, 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 uh, uh, or whatever. You know, Peter, Peter, Peter. But it's just a reminder of how strongly we hold on to our own opinions, especially when they're culturally affirmed. Peter had bad Messiah doctrine because everybody had bad Messiah doctrine. He thought it it, it made a lot of sense to him. Look, if, if the end is God's worship restored in purity, then all these problems that we're experiencing as God's people have got to go away. I mean, that made sense. And in a sense, that's right. But the timing was off. The means were off. He didn't understand the nature of the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of Jesus being a divine necessity to accomplish redemption once and for all. So before we beat up on Peter, we're aware of our own misconceptions, but you could go ahead and list for me how many people understood that at this point. I mean, the only people who've actually really exercised faith have all been outsiders. The unclean woman in chapter five, the Syrophoenician Gentile dog lady in chapter seven, not my words, her words and Jesus's words, the Gentile deaf and mute guy healed in chapter seven. Those, those are the, the pinnacle examples of faith. The, the demon-possessed guy that gets sent out as an apostle in, in Gennesaret, th- those are the examples of those who respond to faith. Nobody's got the story right at this point. Everybody has the wrong understanding. And so Peter's revelation gets them so much closer and then Peter takes five steps back and rebukes Jesus, puts his arm around him and says, it definitely can't go that way. How those words would haunt Peter as the cross came into central focus, as the animosity towards Jesus grew, as the tomb opened up and the resurrection unfolded, as Jesus instructed his apostles and then ascended on to the right hand of God as Peter preached. I wonder how often he remembered this moment when he took the Messiah under his wing to explain a few things to him that messiahs don't suffer, messiahs aren't rejected, messiahs aren't killed. What's all that rise again stuff? Jesus looks at his disciples, verse 33. I don't know if this is Jesus looking at the disciples because he's concerned that they heard what Peter said. He's concerned that they adopt this kind of thinking or because 
Peter's saying what they're all thinking. That's probably what it is. And so he looks at all of them and then says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's one of the most profound rebukes in all of the Bible. Some commentators lighten it by saying, well, Satan means the the opposing one. It's one of the kind of Beelzebub words. And so Jesus is just saying, like, get behind me, opposing view. I don't think so. You know why? Because Satan has been the marked opponent of Jesus for all the gospel of Mark, confronting him in the wilderness, driving all these encounters with evil spirits. Jesus has talked about Satan, about his house, about his opposition. All of that has come through. Jesus clearly identifies that Peter is on the wrong side of everything right now if he doesn't come around to understanding what it means for Jesus to suffer and die It's absolutely essential. I mean, this truth is is certainly for us. And the question is certainly for us. Who really is Jesus? Who is he? And if he is who he says he is, then, then what does that demand? C.S. Lewis has that super famous paragraph where he calls it a, what do people call it? A a trilemma, trilemma. Jesus is either a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. But C.S. Lewis, though, you know I, I love him so much because it, it pesters my fundamentalist friends and because I just love him so much. The heart loves what the heart loves didn't come up with that. A Scottish preacher named Rabbi John Duncan, he was like really into Hebraic stuff, so they called him Rabbi. (laughs) And he called it a trilemma a hundred or more years before C.S. Lewis did. This is how he said it. Christ either, one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or two, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. Other Christians before Lewis made that same kind of claim. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And there's, there's a lot of logic to that claim and, and a lot of truth there. But I think C.S. Lewis made it even more clear in, a, in an essay in 1950 called What Are We to Make of Jesus? And I close with these words. After looking at Jesus' claims in Scripture and insisting that you can't say he was just a good teacher, Lewis says, if that's the case, this would be the sayings of a megalomaniac. And he writes this, in my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from a form of delusion, which undermines the whole mind of men. Now, this is the famous part. If you think you're a poached egg when you're not looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane, but if you think you're God, there's no chance for you. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. He goes on to say, this is difficult because his followers were all Jews, That is, they belong to the nation which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. It is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader could grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine at all easily. He concludes by saying, now as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever the gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend and I'm quite clear that they're not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. 
From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us. It is is the life of anyone else who lived at that time, and no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing, even in modern literature, until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. And so the trilemma stands. Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? And if you say he's the Lord, then you have to accept his terms of that. And that's exactly what he's going to describe in the next paragraph when he talks about what it means to follow him as his disciple. Father, thank you for your truth, for this important crucial reminder of who Jesus is. I pray that no one here would mistake his identity. That we would acknowledge that Jesus is the promised agent of salvation, the anointed savior, the line of David found and fulfilled, the eternal everlasting king of righteousness and justice, the son of man and the son of God. And may we respond to that the way that you demand. This is not a revelation from us, but something that comes from you and your mercy and kindness as you open eyes. So I pray you would continue to do that, furthering our understanding by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.